I know y'all make fun of me for my little uh, psychological things or word etymologies. That's okay. I can take it. Um, object fixation. Y'all know about object fixation. Anybody heard of this one before? Uh, it, it's a it's a crazy psychological thing that that happens. Uh, it's one that that I have an unfortunately apt story for. It's when you're so fixated on something that you miss everything else that's going on around you. And so, who who still rides bikes? Anybody? Okay, good. There was a period of maybe like 10, 15 years in my life where I stopped riding bikes, you know, and I had a friend who was like, hey, we should go trail riding. And I'm like, sure, I know how to ride a bike. Same thing, right? It's what you did when you were a kid. So I got on the bike and we're going down the trails and, you know, it took me like 30 seconds, but, you know, riding a bike, it's like riding a bike. You don't forget, you know, you, you, you can pick up where you left off. And, and, uh, and I, everything was going fine until we came to this gate. They put up these gates to stop cars from getting on the trail. You know what I'm talking about? And there was a little bike path to the side of where it's about the width of a bike. Not much more than that. And so I'm going towards the gate. Object fixation comes in. And I'm thinking, don't hit the gate, Josh. Because that's what you should do is not hit the gate, right? And so I'm, I'm, I'm riding the bike right towards the gate and i'm telling myself don't hit that gate josh go to the side guess what happened (laughs) i plowed into that gate i don't know why i didn't slow down because slowing down is also an option but you know this whole idea of like you know all gas no brakes like that that's kind of my thought my friend was faster than me and i wasn't gonna let that happen so you know I'm, i'm accelerating as fast as i can smack this thing skid all the way down and it's it's embarrassing you know, like, what did you do? I fell off my bike. Josh, you're in your, I think I was in my 30s at this point in time. Like, what, what's happened? Don't you know how to ride a bike by now? Object fixation. We, we joke about this watching our kids play uh, soccer, too, because sometimes the, the kids are so focused on shooting for the goal, right? And they're mindful of the goalie right there trying to stop them. And we say they're passing it to the goalie. The goalie doesn't have to move. Because the kids just kick it right to the goalie. They're so fixated on the obstacles. They're so fixated on the thing that's calling their attention that they're missing what we're actually doing this about, right? You're trying to get a goal. You're trying to get past the goalie. I'm trying to, to ride my bike through the gate, not into the gate. But we become so fixated on the problems. That's all that we can see. Um, this, this look at Colossians I think it has been really good for us. It's been really good for me. It's been a journey so far. So let me tell you how we got here. Um, we started talking about heretical thoughts. That, that was a really good one, <laughs> right? We saw this wild approach that Paul took to addressing heresy. And if you've got a, a notion, as I do, of Paul, he's like this you know, fire and brimstone, like no-nonsense guy. Like he must have come at them with both barrels blazing, right? He, he's got to be able to take these guys out. But what we saw was he didn't actually do that. He used language to unite them, to to focus on those things that united them, not those things that divided them. He used, in fact, some of the same language that they used to build a bridge while still addressing the heretical thoughts and calling them back to what? To Jesus, right? An amazing masterclass, I think, on how to bring unity about when you have very divisive thoughts. And here he is pastoring them, leading them, shepherd them back to the good fold of being focused on Jesus and Jesus alone. Then we enjoyed a fresh celebration on the supremacy of Christ, because again, he's what we're looking at. That passage on the supremacy of Christ in in chapter one, which I've come back to so many times, so vital 
to understand somehow this man that we knew that walked and talked and, and ate fish and everything with us is pre-existent? He's before all things, in all things. He, he's, it's this confounding thing that, that Paul poetically, beautifully, and practically spells out the supremacy of Christ. And then last week, or, and then uh, Leah talked about Jesus being the treasure that we're after and we're on guard about anything that distracts us from that pursuit. You can see a theme through Colossians. And last week, we realized that Paul's inviting us to a radical freedom. I got more calls and comments last week than I, I get about most weeks. Um, I don't think I was heretical, but uh, you know, some people might have heard some different things. But it's a freedom beyond what the world offers us. And I'll hold to what I said. Um, it's beyond what we think of as freedom naturally. It's freedom from judgment. It's freedom from legalism. It's freedom from experientialism, which is, I think, the confounding thought to us. But most of all, it's freedom from self. The fixation we have about who we are is choking out the life that we're actually called to live. When we live for ourselves, you can do that for 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 years, and at the end of it, you're just like, is this all that there is to it? Is it really just making sure my belly's filled at the end of every day? Is, is it just trying to, to, to not feel too deeply and not go too far and just get through this stuff? When we're living for ourselves, that's where we're going to end up. And so much of the time, it comes out with a shallow life, barely lived alone, because we've been living for ourselves. So freedom from yourself is a beautiful, wonderful invitation. And I think we take that as a, as a chastening. We take that as a harsh thing, trying to put yourself down. And that's the asceticism, this idea of punish yourself. You're not good. But the beauty of being able to say, I'm free from myself. I'm free from, from caring about these own desires. It's actually a better, well-lived life once we understand what we're getting towards. Um, freedom from uh, rules. And we talked about wisdom and then uh, this week, we're going to see, set your hearts on things above. And here's the connection to my object fixation. Set your hearts on things above. So we've got Colossians 3 this week, if you want to turn in your Bibles. You can start in verse 1, go through verse 17. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming." You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since, you've been taken, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here... There is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, 
which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I know that's a lot of text, but I think sometimes we, we forget that you read these things as a text, as a letter. And it's good to, to just let it all flow. You could stop and make a commentary at most verses in that, but let the, the whole message, without getting stuck in the detail, let that object fixation kind of guide you towards looking at Jesus and realizing the beauty of this, of what he's calling us to do. All right, but we're, we are going to pick at it a little bit here and, and get into this. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Christ's glory is our glory. Christ's victories are our victories. This is a, a bold and profound idea because, again, if we're living for ourselves, then my glory is my glory. And, and often I, I can only get that at the cost of someone else. I have to take some glory from them. I have to call the attention to myself. I have to compete with my bro- brothers and sisters trying to make sure that I can get this glory. I have to get ahead in this life. Well, how do I get ahead? Well, well I've got to do what I can. I want people to look at me. I want this glory to be, be held there. But when we live for somebody else's glory, our story is wrapped up in that greater picture. It's this idea of the glory of Rome, right? This idea that I'm living for some reality beyond my own, or we are Georgia. I've got a slide for this. You, <laughs> whether or not this, the, the person will go towards it. <laughs> but right, y'all, if you know much about me, I'm a Georgia Bulldog fan. All right, back-to-back reigning national champions, Georgia Bulldogs. And, 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 and object fixation aside, th- this is what I want you to hear. Like, when Georgia wins, I win. <laughs> Me, Josh Pavel, I get the glory of those guys on the field. <laughs> I don't think it's related, but we'll see. Right? You know what I'm talking about? Do you ever feel this sense of identity so keenly that somebody else's victory feels like your own? Like where you feel like, like their glory, their goodness somehow elevates you. It's nonsense with a football team. I mean, it, it, come on, it, it is, right? We, we realize it's nonsense, but I feel it in my bones. And, and, and there's something about me that when we identify with something for whatever means, good or bad, worthy or eternal, when we identify with something so much that we can celebrate that goodness, whether or not I've participated in it, That's the invitation that we have to share in Christ's glory. When he triumphs, when he reigns, when the darkness trembles, when sin is put in its place, when a a sinner is forgiven, when God's glory is revealed, that's to the benefit of all of us. Or do you look skeptically when a sinner that you know says, Father, forgive me, and you're like, he doesn't really mean it. Or if, if that guy, you know, what's the old Marx Brothers uh, thing? I, I won't have a club that would have myself as a member in it, <laughs> right? You're looking like, if, if, if that guy can become a Christian, do I even want to be called a Christian, right? You ever feel that? You look at some of the people that, that take this name that we have ourselves, and you look at what they're doing with it, and you're like, I don't know that that's us. It's the no, no true Scotsman thing. Like, they can't, they, that we can't possibly include them. 
But when we see the evidence of God's glory come, when we see some sinner say, I have been wrong and I am falling at the feet of Jesus, do we meet it with rejoicing, celebration, because Christ's victories are our own? This is our family. This is our, our history. This is our future. This is our hope. This is our glory. When Christ is revealed, we are revealed. That, that's wild to, to actually realize that this is what he's saying. Well, like When we see Christ, I can finally see you. I can finally see my wife as she is really whenever Christ is revealed. I can finally see my kids when Christ is revealed. I've only seen a part of them until I can actually see them redeemed, restored, beautifully set free. This is who we are all meant to be. Our identities are wrapped up in this. So put to death. So so go back to the other one. That's fine. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Next one. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. This is backwards from the way most Christians I know live. And, and, and allow that to, to really settle with you, that this is backwards from how we think. We think, I have to put to death, why? So that therefore then I can become what I've been meant to be. I need to put to death myself because I want to be redeemed. I have to, I have to kill myself because I want to experience God's glory. He's saying the exact opposite. He's saying, since Christ is raised, since you've, you've been raised with him, therefore put to death. It's the exact opposite. We think we have to pay the price first to get into the family. We think that we have to abide by the rules first so that we can prove to God, I'm worthy enough to be counted as your son. We think we have to buy our way in, negotiate our way in, work our way in, and then after we're in, then we can start to see the goodness. That's the world's way of doing things. You have to pay the membership fee before you can get in, right? You can't get into the country club until you pay whatever. You can't get UGA tickets until you pay like $20,000 lifetime. What is up with that? So th- this is the world that we live in, but this is not the kingdom that we're called to. That's the world we live in, but not the kingdom that we're called to. The kingdom that we're called to says you are redeemed. So therefore put to death your sinful nature. You're in. You're redeemed. God's grace is for you. So what do you do because of his glory? What do you do because of his free gift? Well, start living right. <laughs> Put to death these things that, that, that had hampered us, these things that held us back, these things that do not glorify God, these things that don't fit anymore with what we're doing in the kingdom of God. Put to death these things that distance you from who you are and what you're called to be. It's the exact opposite of what we think. Because of Christ, then put to death. We approach the world sometimes with a call to holiness, and we're in the wrong order. In the Old Testament, um, the laws were because of the covenant. They were first delivered from Egypt, and then they were given the laws. Do you, do you realize that? It wasn't that God saying, abide by my laws here, and then I'll set you free, <laughs> right? What came first, the redemption or the rules? The redemption comes first, and then we understand how to live in our freedom. The rules are meant to help us live free. The rules are meant to help us understand how this new world works because we're foreigners to it when we first come in. I don't know what to do with my own freedom. 
It's the idea that, that a blank piece of paper is the most confounding thing for an author. Where do I go? Where do I start? What can I do? That's how we are when we first walk into freedom. I need creativity. I, I, need, I don't know what to do. And we start acting like we always did before. We take that old world mentality into the kingdom of God because it just, it's natural. What else can I do? But we've been redeemed so we can live free. The rules, the laws, the regulations help us understand what to do with our freedom, how to live it out to its best, how to shine it off and enjoy this. God doesn't make his covenant with you because you're faithful. God doesn't make his covenant with you because you've been faithful. Relationship and redemption first, rules later. Imagine this. Imagine that we go to a, to an orphanage and we want to adopt an, a new child. And this is like what Annie, you know, the classic story of Annie. And so we're the parents going in there, looking at all the the kids that that want to be a part of a family. And we go kid to kid, and we say, "Listen, curfews at nine. No electronics in your room. You have to do the dishes every night." You think the kids are like, yes, <laughs> sign me up for that. Let, let me be a part of that family. What if we go up instead and say, I want to watch you develop as a dancer. I'll bring you flowers at your recitals. Our family has movie night every Friday. Every month, somebody gets to pick a new restaurant. We get to explore the town you know, as a family together. We like to make our own ice cream at home, whatever this thing might be. That's what people want to sign up for. The church has been putting forward our rules, our laws, as like our PR campaign. We have been saying, look at how good we are. Look how holy we are. This is what it means to be in the family of God. When it's the exact opposite. We're fighting to put the Ten Commandments in the courtrooms. Let's put the Beatitudes in the courtrooms. Blessed are you. It's confounded. Now, is one right and the other wrong? No. You can, both of those lists can be true, right? But if I want you to be a part of my family, I'm not going to offer you my rules first. I'm going to tell you the benefit, the glory, the goodness, our story, where we've come from and where we're going. The rules are how that makes sense. It's not one at the cost of the other. They both have to be there for this to work out well. If we get all grace and no holiness, we are lost. And if we're all holiness and no grace, what are we even doing? What's the point? But when we see this working as it's meant to, beautifully, wonderfully, hand in hand, what a perfect picture of the kingdom come. So why are we concerned about these things at all in this passage? Previously, we saw the beauty of wisdom versus rules. It was actually for the same reason, to restrain sensual indulgence. That's the end of, of chapter two, that we have this wisdom to restrain sensual indulgence, which is, again, a big call out to the, the Gnostics, the people who thought that, that the flesh was evil to its core and therefore no pleasure could be good. So he, he's got this thing, we're, we're using wisdom to restrain our sensual indulgences. It's a nod to kind of where they're coming from. Um, they're prone to asceticism, but here we see something compounding that because of these the wrath of God is coming. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Paul doesn't paint one picture and just say, come into the family of God, that's all there is to it. Let's focus on the supremacy of Christ and move on. He's a very realist about the nature of the fallen world and what God calls us to. 
And if we ever preach one message and ignore the other, we are doing the world a disservice. I think in the 21st century, uh, we're very prone to play a game of it'll be okay. You know, that, that, that maybe this whole religion thing, this whole church thing is just about trying to, to get ahead. Maybe that this whole religion thing is just about living a good life or making the world a better place. And, and that's the entirety of, of what we're hoping for. We understand that, that if everybody followed these rules, the world would be a better place. So isn't that good enough on its own? And what we're losing then is the personality and the presence of God, the invitation for him, the, the, per, the, the reality of a God who is above all and who is in all. You've heard me say this a lot because I think the world struggles with this. God is not a force of nature. It's not like gravity. <laughs> it, it, it's not like the, this, this force of, of nature that if we set things the right way, then things have to follow a certain rule because that's the way that God is. And, and we think that it's going to be this sort of thing in the church. Like if we have the right air of repentance, if we are, are just holy enough, if we do things the right way for long enough, then we will see the goodness of God amongst us. We think like if I set the, the wood in the right pattern and if I put the flint and the steel right next to it and then the wind of God will just have to blow through because that's what it does and we'll have this Holy Spirit revival moment. And I feel like the church has been playing with twigs, trying to set up the right fire structure, just hoping that maybe we can get the formula right. And if we can get the formula right, then we'll see the kingdom here on earth. But all along, we're forgetting the very nature of a God who is living and breathing, who has likes and dislikes, who has a personality, who has preferences, and who has wrath, who has patience, who has kindness, who has a story and a history that we are a part of. God is a personal God. What does that mean? That means you have to talk to him. That means you have to engage with him. You have to know him. And he might not be what you expected him to be. He's not the generic little G God who is like a force of nature that, you know, all religions are kind of talking about the same thing. He is the God who chose the Israelites to the chagrin of most people around the world at that time. And why them? Why do they get this promised land? And why, what is going on with this story? And it's hard and it feels unfair. And God says, you know why I chose them? Because I chose them. And that's in your scripture. And what do we do about that? How do we reconcile that? And he came to one small town 2,000 years ago in flesh. He didn't walk the, the, the shores of America. He didn't walk around Africa. He didn't go to Australia. He came to one place. That's our God. That's the story of a God who is so personal that he came as flesh and he was a specific story. It's fully realized in Jesus. He's not some cosmic energy or an alternate name for the universe. And that's a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. And it's a wonderful thing. And we've been included in that story. It's not one or the other. It's not God's grace or his wrath. It's both and. I, I hope we never preach one-sided sermons here because this stuff is hard and challenging. And your lived life probably helps you know that. It's not all sunshine and roses and, and victory and Jesus triumphs over all. There's real loss real sorrow. There's real trials and tribulations. There's real questions. The questions are real. And any time that your questions and your doubts have been, you know, put it to the side, it's like, well, don't worry about that. We don't look in that corner. But, you know, that's a disservice to you. But the, the, the truth of it is it's hard stuff. 
And I want to be a place where we engage and we understand that these are worth asking and pressing in because God is God of all. And he's not going to be afraid. He's not going to be scared away by these things. It's a lot easier to choose one way or the other. But the gospel is for both the perpetrator and the victim. We have mountains of blessing and cursing. I've I've got this pulled up. This is something we talked about in Sunday school a little while ago. But it's something that I I don't know that, that there's wide remembrance of you've probably read this in the in your studies or whatever and skipped on because okay whatever this is what happened but they they walked the israelites after they were redeemed when they're going into the promised land when they're being given the law these rules these things that we're talking about they were led through this valley this actual valley that we have a picture of right here and they had on both sides the levites reading from the law the blessings and the curses If you do this, this is the blessing that will come to you. If you break it, this is what will happen. The blessings and the curses being spoken over them as the people walked through this valley going into the promised land. It's an amazing picture that we walk that line. We are walking between those things. God is a real God with real power, real authority. We want to be comfortable with him, but but he's not a teddy bear. And every time this comes up in church, every pastor i know (laughs) we always quote c.s lewis on this from from the chronicles of narnia because i don't know if it's ever better said better he's he said is he is he safe talking about aslan and they laugh is he safe no he's not safe but he's good that's the difference i think that captures our imagination that that tells us what we understand about this is it safe well let me tell you life is hard And our holiness matters, but our God is good. And that gives me more than hope. That gives me every reason to to trust and to, to keep working forward, to work out my salvation with fear and trembling in the full light of the blessing of God, knowing, knowing that he's kind, knowing that he's just, knowing that there's goodness to be found there, knowing that even his correction is for my benefit, knowing that even his discipline brings me to the place where I need to be. So that's why, that's why this stuff matters because the wrath of God is real. And then it says this, put to death and then rid yourself. This is going back to the scripture. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. I, I keep thinking about this, right? If my sinful nature is dead, it's dead, right? What, what, what more is there to be done? Like when something's dead, then, then can't I just be free from it and just move on with my life? And I realized that this, this was one of the times where my Bible wasn't with me, but um, for whatever reason, this scripture just resonated in my head one day. And I just realized that I never really understood this scripture because what I wanted, what I think many of us want is to think, once I come into the kingdom of God, once I, I have repented from my sins, then the rest of it just kind of has like a tide, like in the river where things just have to go a certain direction. And like, okay, I'm now in the stream of God and everything's going to work out okay. And like, I can just kick up my feet in like the, if you've ever go tubing, you know, like, you know, we, we can do that around here and you just coast and everything's going to be okay generally because I'm now in the river of God. This command is not for God to do something, but for us to do something. Hey, you church, Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. You do this. Don't wait for God to do this. (laughs) You do this. You put to death 
your sinful nature. And then it says this, then rid yourself too. But now you, <laughs> see, you got to put it in green so you can tell, pay attention to it. You must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. You ever just pray for God to do it? <laughs> God, take away my anger. Hey, you, rid yourself of anger. Oh, no. That's not, I, I don't know that that's the way I want to do this. Lord, take this filthy language from my lips. No, stop saying it. <laughs> do you see? It, it's really challenging to me. It's not what I necessarily wanted. But this is what we are told to do. And it makes sense in this great picture. It makes sense when we work this out. And, and it's embarrassing to us, I think, sometimes how lazy we can become as Christians. That we just think God's going to do this for us. If I could just be quiet enough. If I could just be passive enough. If I can just let it happen to me. And so what we end up with is, is people who think all I have to do is not, not rock the boat. All I have to do is just be quiet and good enough and just bottle things up. If, if I'm not good enough yet, then I, I just have to be still. That sounds like a good Christian thing. Be still and know that I'm the Lord. Okay, yeah, I'm just going to be still and not do anything and things will work out okay. No, Paul tells you, put it to death. Rid yourself of these things. That's the command. That's the call. And it's active for us. It's active for us. All right, I'll leave you alone on a minute on that one. We'll come back to it in a second. <laughs> we talk so much in this world these days, it seems about identity, who we are, right? People are, are, are so keen to talk about what makes me me. What, what, what is my story? What's my unique things? What, what is this thing that, who, who am I really at the end of the day? And we've been saying Christ is supreme. Look at him, object fixation again. Look at Christ, Christ is supreme. So what does that mean? That means that there's no Gentile or Jew, no Israeli or Palestinians, no Russians or Ukrainians, no lawbreakers and law abiders, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. I mean, that seems like a, these seem like factual statements. You are one of these things or you are not. And Paul is telling us, no, here in this space, here in the kingdom of God, that identity makes zero sense. It's nonsense. Why are you talking about being a Jew or a Gentile? Why are you talking about being circumcised or uncircumcised? That is the least relevant thing in this room right now. Why are we talking about this, this boundary that we draw on the earth that separates people's homes from other people's homes whenever there are believers on both sides? Why, why are we so fascinated with what divides us? Why are we so concerned about what makes me unique and you unique whenever the important thing is Christ is central and that he is Lord of all? Christ is all and is in all. That's the call. That's the compelling reason that in here we have a different lived reality than what we have out there. These identities we have are not the most central thing. It is Christ. Not that it should be Christ. It is Christ. Because we are being renewed in knowledge and in the image of our creator. Again, this is almost Gnostic. This is almost Gnostic. But Paul is saying this is so beautiful. This is so wonderful. What makes us different? What makes us better? The answer is Christ. There was a popular saying in churches that, that bothered me like nothing else. And if you have this bumper sticker, I, I apologize, but I am still bothered by it. Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. Anybody see that one? Please don't. <laughs> please, please don't. 
we're not just forgiven. We are forgiven, but we are different. Like, if we're not different, what are we doing? Like, there, there's, there's real tangible difference to being a Christ follower. Our lived lives are different. We make different choices. We answer to a different authority. We, we act differently. We've been talking so much about the things that, that the world has. Well, the kingdom is different. Like, your, your heritage, the, the, the stories that we come from, that's not the most important thing. What's important is the kingdom of God and where it's taking us. And all this exaltation on the self is shadowed in the light of the glory whenever he shows up. And when our object fixation is on Christ and Christ alone, then we can see each other much, 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 much more clearer than what we ever did whenever we're exalting the self. I was never a, a comic book guy, but uh, every blue moon, like a, a comic actually ends up on the theological and philosophical corners of the internet that I go on. And uh, so I, I'm, I'm going to sound like a real novice on these things. You probably can't read this, this too well, but apparently Wonder Woman has a lasso of truth. Y'all know this. And if you're touching it or if it's touching you, you're compelled to tell the truth. So this was like a Justice League thing. I had to look up the, the, the lore behind there. This was a Justice League thing where um, they wanted to like bond and like get to know each other like really truly. So they're, they're all going to hold the lasso of truth and, and, and share their, their secret identities. All right. So I, I don't know if I can actually read on here. It's too small for me. So Wonder Woman says, I am Diana of... I don't even know, daughter of Queen Hippolyte. And then Superman says, I'm Clark Kent. And then he gives his, his name from Krypton and that Kelly. And Batman says, I'm Batman. <laughs> <laughs> and the, there's, the reason that this makes its way into the philosophical circles is because people are saying Batman is who he is. His secret identity is um, Bruce Wayne. Right, that's, that's who he puts on. That's the one who he's trying to fit in with the world. But in his core, his identity is Batman. Like he is himself in that. Everybody else changes into their superhero mode, but that's the compelling thing about who Batman is. Clark Kent takes off his Clark Kent clothes and puts on Superman clothes to start acting like a superhero, right? And Batman is the flip on that. Therefore, scripture says, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. We may put on these clothes, but they're your clothes. They're the outfit of the kingdom of God. This is what you're made to be. This is putting on your uniform. This is, this is, showing, this is revealing who I always was meant to be. This is putting on the clothes that, that were tailor-made for exactly what you need in this world. They fit us well. They're for us. I'm not going to go into the world every day naked. <laughs> I need to put something on. Let me put on the clothes that reveal who I really am. I think our fear, and rightly so, is that we fear that we are being disingenuous or hypocritical. We're like, well, I don't know that I'm really that way yet. So I don't want to feel like I'm putting on a part. I don't want to pretend. Like I, I want to be authentic to myself. Again, this whole idea of identity, who I really, really am. And I think it is a good thing to be mindful of being hypocritical. We don't want to be hypocritical. But I want to say this. Being a hypocrite is not the distance between who you are 
and who you want to be. It's not the distance between who I am now and what I'm hoping and striving and working to be. It's not the gap between what I want to do and what I end up doing for whatever reason. That doesn't make you a hypocrite. Hypocrisy is the gap between the public persona and the private persona. It's theatrical religion. It's religion as a means of personal enrichment or to enhance our reputations. That's hypocrisy. Using religion, using that language, dressing up and trying to look a certain way when all along our hearts are not given to the Lord. That's hypocritical. But if we ourselves are striving and trying and we're putting on the clothes of righteousness, we're putting on the clothes of love and peace, and I'm not comfortable with this because I haven't worn it too much yet, I gotta break it in, that's okay. Wear it, walk around the block in it, see how it works. Try to make sure that I know that when I'm wearing this, I'm representing the kingdom of God and what I do matters. This is a good thing to work this out. This passage calls with a call about what unites us, not what divides us. Peace, thanksgiving. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or do, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Christ's message is wisdom, not rules, wisdom. That's a confounding thought. We want to put him into a box of do this and don't do that, and we're comfortable with that, and, and rules have their place in the kingdom of God. We understand what holiness is and what it's not. We know what delights our Father and what doesn't. But the call for this is wisdom, and that's much more challenging. Peace, thanksgiving. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Rules lead to rituals, precise actions, things to do and things not to do. Wisdom leads to admonishing one another, singing, and gratitude. What family do I want to be in? <laughs> to be honest, do you know what admonish means? <laughs> Don't Google it. <laughs> Anybody know what admonish means? All right. Yeah, actually, good. It does mean that to warn somebody something earnestly. So even in this, it's not like everything's great and fine. We're just going to sing songs, kumbaya, and everything's great. Coupled up with our worship, with our thanksgiving, with our peace, is a call to admonish each other, to call them back, to warn them when the wisdom's going too far away. Don't forget. You're, you're, you don't remember who your Lord is. You put on the wrong clothes this morning. <laughs> put, on the, put on the clothes that, that, that the Lord has given you. Admonish one another. Not judge, not criticize, not throw out. Admonish one another back to the truth. What a wonderful family. What a great way to do it. This describes who I think we want to be. It describes what I want a, a church to look like. And so many times you see these harsh letters of like, you're out, you're in, you know, or, or like, oh, you did this wrong and how dare you and all that stuff. But this is what our scripture tells us. 
This is the picture of community. It's a, it's a, a fatherly, a pastorly way of just saying, hey, I desire you to be here. Come back. Come back. And wherever I've been wrong, wherever I've put on the wrong clothes, I repent from that. I turn from that. We're not getting away from holiness. So we're going to worship with this. We're going to put on love, peace, thanksgiving. The clothes might not be too comfortable for you yet. I, I don't know where you're at. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not you. <laughs> if you act peaceful, if you act with gratitude, does it feel foreign? Does it feel stiff and rigid? Okay, put it on. <laughs> Try it out. I can tell you that as you work those things out in context, as you live those lives, the clothes are meant for you. They're meant for you. You are meant to be a person full of joy and peace and thanksgiving and gratitude who treats your brothers and sisters that way. You are made for that. These clothes are for you. But sometimes we've been wearing the other clothes for so long that they just feel way more natural. But it's a feeling. You can work this out.